Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. I'm John Valdhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. This is your weekly reminder that on Sunday, November 13th of this year, Commentary Magazine will be holding its 12th annual roast. This roast is of Barry Weiss, one of the great conservative events of the year, always in New York at a hotel to be named later. Go to commentary.org slash roast for more information. This is not a cheap date. This is not a cheap ticket. This is our major fundraising event of the year, but we deliver quality for those dollars. People love this event. And if you are in New York or want to take a quick trip to New York or anything like that, this is the place to be Sunday, November 13th, 2022. The Commentary Magazine Roast of Barry Weiss. Go to commentary.org slash roast for more details. Abe Greenwald is out today. I don't know how we're going to labor on without him, but we will with media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman, who will be out for a week as of tomorrow. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us in Abe's stead, uh, Washington commentary columnist, AI scholar, and author of The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Uh, so, yes, we are going to talk about uh, the Game of Thrones sequel. We are. It's going to happen. It's the most important cultural event of the summer. Uh, and Matt um, has written extensively on the original Game of Thrones, the books of Game of Thrones, the concordances of, of Game of Thrones, he has made comments about George R. R. Martin's beard and whether he's ever going to finish the books. And so he's very expert on this subject, and we will get to that. But first, some guy nobody ever heard of turns around and gives $1.6 billion to our friend Leonard Leo, former head of the Federalist Society. This guy, his name is Barry Sade. It appears nobody really knows how to pronounce his name because no one's ever heard of him before, even though he is a billionaire, which is another amazing thing about America, is that there are now billionaires you've never heard of. There was a point 50 years ago where every millionaire in the country was somebody that someone had heard of, and now we have billionaires that no one's ever heard of. His fortune comes from making surge protectors. That is apparently the fortune. It's a surge protector fortune. Billions of dollars making surge protectors. What a country we live in. What an amazing country that you could make billions of dollars in surge protectors. And then you could take all the stock that you hold in your company and you could start another company and you could assign the stock to this other company, save yourself $400 million in taxes. So you're not saving yourself because you're not getting any of it. You are essentially then turning a gift of $1.2 billion into a gift of $1.6 billion. You start this 501c4 to handle the $1.6 billion that is run by Leonard Leo, the former head of the Federalist Society and the man who is responsible uh, more than any other person in the last, you know, sort of seven, eight years for helping with judicial nominations and stuff well before that, though he was not the only person at the Federalist Society. And now there is this giant pool of money to help elect conservatives, push conservative ideas. We don't, nobody even knows because it's all very, very secret. But his name is Barry Side. And uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you have any money left, commentary.org slash donate. I hear you are a member of the tribe. I hear you are good on Israel. Commentary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we don't need $1.6 billion, but we could use some help. Commentary.org slash donate. And if you want, come to the roast. I'll comp you. I promise. Um, I hear you went to the University of Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago. So, you know, Lanzmann there. And I think basically, uh, since I don't know you, but it's possible you listen. We now have we have major American comedians who listen to this podcast every day. I'm not even going to I'm not going to sort of break break the seal of trust to say who they are. But uh, but uh, we got comedians, we got academics and we might have Barry side. Who knows? He may be working out right now, listening to my voice. Commentary.org slash donate. And that goes for all of you. Commentary.org slash donate. Matt. As the author of The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism, let us try to place this gift in context 
in how we define the conservative movement. Is it the conservative movement? Is this money for the conservative movement? Is it money for the Republican Party, which is actually has to be understood and particularly more and more as being apart from the conservative movement and its general ideological purposes or its uh, intellectual purposes, let's say, or is this just kind of a catch-up to the sorts of things that liberals have been doing for the last 10, 12 years? Right. Well, you know, um, when I heard the news and uh, I was very excited about the gift, I think Leonard Leo is a great conservative leader. Um, he's achieved quite a bit. That's uh, mattcontinetti.org slash donate. In his career. <laughs> Uh, um, Leo, of course, uh, is the one who uh, convinced Donald Trump to, you know, uh, commit to his list of potential Supreme Court replacements for Antonin Scalia, one of the more important decisions in uh, American history, because it's led to the uh, 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Um, We should stop for a moment and, and talk about that, because remember that Trump said when he was first asked in 2015 whom he would appoint to the court if he were president, the first person he mentioned right. was... His sister. His sister, yes. So yeah. so the educative process leading to Trump understanding that what he needed to do in order to f- consolidate people behind him was actually to, put, to agree to a list of 20 prominent conservative jurists with right. records... And 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 ideas and all of that was that was that was not a given. That was actually a a important Machiavellian play, not only in getting Trump to consolidate the right behind him, but in but in putting Trump on record that he couldn't just name his sister to the Supreme Court. And, and, you know, and it's Trump's most lasting legacy. And of course, this year it paid huge dividends. With the uh, overruling of Roe v. Wade, a long, long time goal, uh, not only of the pro-life movement, but also of the um, originalist movement in conservative jurisprudence. So uh, first thing was I was happy and excited to hear the news. Second thing I did was look up the endowments of the uh, Open Society Foundations and the Ford Foundations, because this gift of about $1.6 what it, even though it's the single largest gift, I think um, it, it was kind of treated in the New York Times story as something that's just going to totally reorient American politics even more to the right. And this radical conservatism uh, legal movement is going to make even greater strides. Well, the Open Society Foundations uh, is the third world's third largest philanthropic fund after the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the United Kingdom's Welcome Trust, an open society, which is the George Soros organization, a progressive organization, has an endowment of $18 billion. And then the Ford Foundation, which was endowed by uh, a notorious anti-Semite and figure on the right, Henry Ford, um, but has now, uh, over the generations, been uh, captured by uh, also progressive movements, um, activists running it it has an endowment of 16 billion so I, I think the takeaway is as large as this gift is and as significant in terms of its structure as it is it's still nowhere net um uh, nowhere near parity in terms of the philanthropic assets available to the right as compared with the left there's also it's it's been fascinating too because there's long been Matt's absolutely right particularly in mainstream liberal leaning media there's long been an effort at portentous overlay anytime there's a large conservative gift given to any individual or organization like they're taking over they're taking over which is ridiculous but there's also been on campuses uh in the last you know five to ten years that there's been a movement by activists progressive students to what's called uncoke my campus that's k-o-c-h the coke foundation which tends to give to free enterprise and free market based uh institutions and and groups so they wanted to take coke money off the campus they're very activist about it um they want to defund any sort of seemingly right-wing money 
And it's and they have, you know, we've had a lot of liberal uh, elected officials decry dark money on the right. This is you know the very fact that it's called dark money is supposed to make you scared of it. Meanwhile, the left has been spending lavishly in just the same ways. The 1630 fund um, is, is massive dark money spending. They had a significant impact on uh, recent elections, particularly in financing attacks on, on Trump's reelection. They spend a ton of money, more than so-called dark money that's spent by the right. So there's always been a lot of hypocrisy in the left's messaging about money that comes from conservative individuals and conservative institutions. Um, it, it's Matt's absolutely right that the major foundations outspend the major conservative institutions every year. It makes sense if you're inclined towards a Marxian analysis of history that you would see capital as the chief driver of historical events. And that's generally who populates American newsrooms. But And one of the major stories of the great realignment, ideological realignment, is that affluent, educated voters in the suburbs, some of usually kind of split down the middle, even have a Republican advantage, now lean dramatically towards Democrats and have increased their fundraising pretty precipitously. Um, but in the last cycle, in 2020, uh, Democrats in competitive districts outraised Republicans on average by about $2 million per candidate. The average for a competitive district Republican was just over $2.5 million. And by contrast for Democrats, it was just almost $4.5 million. And Republicans picked up a ton of seats in 2020. Fundraising well, did a, not matter. Uh, can I make a distinction, though, between money and politics, where I agree absolutely, Noah, it's necessary but not sufficient, and money and ideas, which I think has a huge impact. And I'll give you a few examples. One is, I mentioned the Open Society Foundation. It's at the leading edge of the decarceration movement. It We know that Soros and his affiliates put tons of money in to elect these prosecutors in uh, it, throughout the, the, not, the naughty audies, but then most recently in like 2018. And the result, it's clear. I mean, it's a spike in the murder rate. People are, people are dying because of the decarceration, which, by the way, also comes from the right. We've we've mentioned the Koch uh, foundations. Uh, they, they are behind the criminal justice reform movement, um, which led to uh, the, the First Step Act, the so-called Jailbreak Act. And that, too. I mean, so that's money being put in the service of an idea. Um, and I think I we also see this on the foreign policy level, too, where there are many foundations uh, that um, believe in so-called foreign policy restraint, and they have been funding organizations as well as uh, actual PhD candidates who believe in their ideas. And that goes a long way into shaping the discourse. Um, and I and I think that's why it was very important for the, just to get to my book, it was very important for the right to find institutional bases of support for their own ideas, in particular free market ones at the outset of a hundred years ago, um, as a way of kind of disseminating them and shaping what Wil Milton Friedman called the climate of opinion. So I totally agree. In actual electoral politics, money significance is overrated. However, I think in the realm of ideas and that climate of opinion, we can almost underrate how significant money that's, can be. That's very interesting. I want to ask you a question, Matt, because there are counter examples to this that maybe you can help me shape my, my views on this, because I was reminded of the 2006 George Soros funded Secretary of State project. Do you remember mm -hmm. this? Right. This was a big bugbear on the right. And I remember being drawn into this because it was just basically like, if we take the secretaries of state, we can control the electoral process. And that was very unnerving in 2006. And what's the left's complaint now is that Republicans are taking over the electoral process. They're winning all these secretary of state races. They're going to have control over this, over right. how they can manage elections. So that was an abject failure, despite its it's affluence, it's large. Well, yes. And, but of course, also dealing with electoral politics. So take another a counter example would, be, politics, would yeah. be the decriminalization movement of marijuana. Right. That's, again, another huge open society priority. And now I can't walk two blocks in Washington, D.C. Yeah. without that rank odor. So at these these it does have consequences in the in the realm of shaping opinion, I think, and getting people, you know, finding people who can be placed in positions where they articulate these ideas that have an indirect impact on policy, not necessarily on actual electoral mechanics. Right. Well, the relation between money and ideas is a very complex one. And one of the things about idea driven publications, think tanks, that kind of thing, 
um, is that the promise and commentary is an example of this is that is that we punch above our weight that that if we if we fulfill our mandate properly you don't have to give us a lot of money if the idea is that we champion are are um compelling and seem to describe the world better than ideas that others promulgate um that you can take a very small kernel thing and it can blossom into a giant society changing set of ideas i mean the most dramatic i think of these i mean you could basically say commentary in the 1970s which reframed american foreign policy in many ways and was a magazine that at the time never had more than 40,000 readers in any given month but you know you have the story of charles murray and losing ground charles murray was a completely unknown he wasn't even an academic he was a reasonably unknown person uh, working for the Manhattan Institute, a then unknown think tank. And he published this book featuring this kind of thought experiment of, well, what would the world be like if we ended cradle-to-grave welfare in the United States? That book was published in 1984, and in 1996, a Democratic president signed into law welfare reform, ending cradle-to-grave welfare in the United States. It took 12 years. The book was a shot in the dark, in a certain sense, uh, a uh, a very brilliantly formalized argument that was entirely common sense driven, rather than you know, here's all my research showing I've done regression analyses and this and that and the other thing. It was, what do we know about what? dependency does to people and what what would what would happen if we remove dependency on government as a thing so in a funny way you get a gift like this and um you, you, there is the danger of what people might call the macarthur genius grant effect which is that if you really if you if if you believe in the devil you might think that the devil went to the macarthur foundation's board and said, uh, give all these people money. Because when people get MacArthur Genius Grants, sort of like when actors win Oscars, they get paralyzed. Far from it producing, giving them the freedom to produce whatever work they want, it often silences people, causes writer's block, causes artistic... Um, frozenness and all of that that uh money is a double-edged sword and uh grant money is a double-edged sword often and so uh you could have the situation in which we now have flooded the zone of conservatism with this gigantic gift it's not clear what the purpose of the gift is going to be or where it's going to go the presumption that it is going to be transformative in the way that Matt describes the progressive prosecutors project as being transformative. That's an open question. I mean, one of the reasons that the progressive prosecutors project was so brilliant was that it was so, um, uh, that you were playing in a field in which no one had ever played before. So you're like going in, dropping into a world in which often in these elections, 10% of people participate or 12 They don't know who they're voting for. They've never heard. There's no one else on the ballot. Uh, you know, in New York City, for example, in the prosecute, you know, the Manhattan DA's race, there never was and there never were any other candidate for like 30 years, 40 years. Robert Morgenthau ran unopposed. There never were any other anybody else to vote for. You kind of pop in there and you kind of play around there, you can have an enormous impact. I think Republicans or conservatives are going to be discovering this over the next two years in school boards across the country where school board elections, which are often have the lowest participation on, on the planet in terms of electoral effect. Suddenly people are not only paying attention, but there is going to be some seed money to help people run in these places to get themselves name ID in these districts. And the revolution in the public school system could be crazy because no one's ever no one's ever kind of politicized these races. They've all been done in this way to kind of lower voter turnout and let, you know, sort of whoever 
whoever has already in the status quo remain in the status quo. So it's a it's just saying here's a billion six, go change America in a conservative direction. That money could that you could be lighting that money on fire. Now Leonard Leo is not somebody who lights money on fire. He has a proven record of accomplishment with 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 the money that he raises. But it's interesting because as Noah says in the end, what matters are the ideas themselves. Can they have can they get the can they get purchase? And do you do it in the right way? So because you can be Meg another money story, like you can be Meg Whitman and spend $158 million of your own money in the Senate race in California and get 42% of the vote. Well, that's that's where I, what you choose to fund, and it'll be interesting to watch what Leo and his organization choose to fund with this gift. One thing I think conservatives are only now realizing they needed to do better was what might be thought of as like the infrastructure of ideas funding, getting getting uh, cultivating younger people who will then work through a system and be able to transform it from within. That's what the left has done very well in many institutions, academic institutions being the most um, obvious example, but also in in government institutions to tr- to to sort of give younger people who are of conservative temperament and mind a sense of how they can go about building within institutions um, places that are not hostile to conservative ideas or to free market ideas or to or to any of the whatever the particular issue is. If in Leo's case, it's it's a, it's legal ideas, but that actually is a we're seeing that start. I mean, th- there are obviously little little pockets of that throughout, but there's a really large mountain to climb when you start thinking about some of the cultural institutions that have long been uh, under the capture of liberal ideas and that, that have grown ever more hostile to conservative ideas. That's a place where perhaps, you know, younger people can work their way through a system becoming the sort of mid-level managers, editors, you know, whatever whatever positions would encourage more more uh, debate and better, uh, more heterogeneity of ideas and not the kind of ideological monoculture that reigns in many of these institutions. But, you know, Noah, one of the things that we keep talking about in relation to the sort of the Trump candidates or the the crazier candidates who have won in 2022 is how uh, Trump led the way, revolutionized an approach in politics, which was to stop trying to persuade people who are persuadable and to basically just attack everybody who wasn't already on your side and either cow people who might otherwise come to agree with you for actual reasons, but you cow them and frighten them into submission, which then makes them maybe submissive, but it doesn't really make them productive. Um, But that persuasion is not part of the template here. So if you're Carrie Lake and, Arizona she if she has an electoral strategy which I which I kind of doubt I don't think there is a strategy in mind here it is to insult and defame everybody who disagrees with her and then to hope or believe that there's just a silent majority of people that agree with her and like this approach and all of that and so it's an interesting moment for this money to have entered into this contest of ideas because in an odd way the 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 vanguard of the republican party is no longer interested in the contest of ideas they're interested in power they're interested in having a war over power the idea is the left has all the power and so we have to seize power through populist means because they control every other institution and they want to shut us up and they want to dominate us and they want to silence us and they want to woke us and they want to cancel us and we just have to take everything back from them by force and do to them what they do to us and that is actually not what a contest of ideas is exactly it is an approach though i mean it is i think it doesn't win because you don't have enough people on your side unlike what carrie lake and others might think but I mean, it is a it is a it is an approach. It's not hasn't really been the American approach, but nonetheless, that's an interesting outlook. Um, I think everybody, not least of whom Republicans, but certainly the left as well, sort of de-emphasized the contest of ideas that occurred in 2016. It really was a battle of two competing theories of not social organization, but uh, organizing government and 
um, what the priorities of uh, American government should be. Uh, and that was muted by obviously the largeness of the personalities. Um, but both sides sort of forgot that there were ideas at play in 2016. And we've subsequently subsequently been treated to personality contests generally ever since. I mean, like, so who are the candidates that the Trump movement was drawn to, particularly Trump himself? Carrie Lake, television personality. Mehmet Oz, television personality. Herschel Walker, not television personality, but a personality, a very large personality, in fact. But nevertheless, uh, there's there's an element on the right that's always been attracted to celebrity as an answer to the left's celebrity. Uh, it has certainly overtaken whatever uh, whatever debate over ideas that we used to have. But the problem is it's the sacrifice of conservatism has, has left the party generally rudderless when it comes to ideas. There's this populist nationalist element, which does have an intellectual wing to it that perceive themselves to be ascendant. But I don't think they are. I don't think they've made their case to the electorate, um, in part because these candidates don't advance these ideas in the way that American Compass does. Doesn't It certainly doesn't share their approach. Maybe they share their values, but certainly doesn't share their approach. Um, you could say J.D. Vance sort of has a, a coherent worldview, also Trump endorsed, but only reluctantly, uh, in part because he's generally an intellectual. Um, but that intellectual strain has has definitely not come to the fore of the Trump movement. It is still a personality movement. Well, J.D. Vance is an interesting case because he's somebody who came at this in a kind of, I don't want to use the Charles Murray example because he wrote a memoir, but he came at this writing a book about idea about America, came to fame, writing a book about what ails America using his personal story and an idea about what 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 is motivating and not properly motivating American Americans at the at the sort of uh, working class and lower than working class level. And then basically he decided to adopt, he's a writer who wrote a, a, a meaningful book and he is now selling the classic comics version of his book or the, you know, I don't know, the sort of pornographic version of his book as his way of trying to win elections. You know, he's sort of playing in a higher field as a Yale Law School graduate, student of Amy Chua, wrote on David Frum's blog and now he's trying to out MAGA the MAGAites. Uh, in part, that's a that's a concession to the idea that while he saw his future as a uh, purveyor of ideas, when he decided to take a stab at direct involvement in politics, he did not think that that was going to work. Well, I mean, I would say I think J.D. Vance always had his eye on electoral politics okay. even before he wrote the memoir but two you know he's running a very populist campaign but he's also involved in that group that noah mentioned which is the national conservatives the so-called natcons well who's one of the biggest players in that world uh peter Thiel, right peter Thiel has put his money to work funding uh, uh vance funding blake masters in arizona participating in uh natcon organization uh, participating in Claremont Institute um, organization and publication. So he too believes, Teal, in this idea that you have to put your money to work to back certain ideas. Now, these celebrity candidates we're talking about, ideas are not at the forefront of their mind. But as we were discussing with Trump and the Federalist Society, eventually they're going to have to do something, you know, <laughs> if they're, yeah. if it's not just going to be you know, totally just a bunch of grievance and complaining and, and scandal. And what the competition is for is what are they going to do? And is it is the, are the policies that are presented to these populist leaders when they're in office, are they going to be in line with, say, um, you would call the American conservative tradition uh, of the last century? Or are they going to be in line with a much more nationalist populist continental European idea of what uh, right politicians should do when they're in power. And I think that's where uh, that's where the debate is. And um, my gut tells me uh, that uh, Leonard Leo is more on the side of the American conservative tradition than he is necessarily on the side of the new ascendant forces of populism, nationalism. Right. That's well, just my right. gut. Right. So the great quote here, 
it's not from a it's from a it's from a, an enemy of conservatism or one of the great bugbears of conservatism in the 20th century john maynard keynes who famously said practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences that would be carrie lake let's say are usually the slaves of some defunct economist meaning that whatever they blather about originates in complex ideas and analyses that have been degraded into blather over time but are, but but you can still see the skeleton of the ideas when people when when trumpian people talk about wokeness or the threat of pc or whatever or fake media whatever it is whatever the terminology that they use there's 40 years or 50 years of work at places like commentary or the weekly standard or national review or heritage or aer something like that that provided the total architecture for this caricatured version of the arguments that have been made but that but that's actually, first of all defunct economists would be a great punk band name but there's there's a real what's fascinating about that though is now i actually think there the, the shrinkage of time between the sort of uh promulgation of an idea on one side or the other and its capture by elected officials and its attempt to be molded into some form of policy the woke thing is interesting. I mean, political correctness had been an argument and a fight that that had been going on for decades. But the whole woke uh, sort of uh, way of discussing it and seeing it and framing it is fairly new. And it very quickly moved its way into forms of legislation that often were, unfortunately, because I don't, you know, I'm kind of on the side of less woke is better, uh, have led to some overreach. I mean, in Florida, the the big piece of woke anti-woke legislation, parts of it were just struck down by a judge. Um, th there's been a rush to kind of legislate ideas that are still actually being worked out among the ideas people in a way that can often backfire on, on what's a crucial point, which is I think fighting against wokeness is a very important thing that conservatives should continue to do. But we're also fighting sort of overreach on our own side all the time about some of that because the speed with which this stuff now kind of reaches the public conversation Let, let's go to florida actually because of course you're talking about the this 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 law that kind of reaches into private companies and what it is that they do to promulgate uh, diversity and equity uh, policies and whether that's fair or not so there's a prime today's primary day in a couple of states florida being one of them new york being another and the race is on in Florida for who will can who will go up at Ron DeSantis um, in November. Two candidates, uh, Nikki Freed, a describer, just sort of conventional. She's the Ag Commissioner. She's the Ag Commissioner. You know, conventional liberal politician and then uh the unca almost uncategorizable charlie Crist, the republican uh governor uh in the in the 2000s who then uh found himself defenestrated by marco rubio's insurgent campaign for senate uh and then christ switched parties uh ran as a Democrat again lost ran as a Democrat for Congress won and he is now running for his 87th time to become governor uh, as a as a Democrat a very weird I mean an accomplished politician obviously having won in various parties in various ways very weird guy strange person odd me and very tan, tan. very very tan likes a fan he's got a fan at his feet at all times when he speaks a uh, lot of lot of lot of lot of jokes being made about Charlie have been made about Charlie Crist and his pet fan that they put at the bottom of the podium. He's such a classic school. Florida creature, though. Honestly, yeah. I have to say, as a yeah. Floridian myself. <laughs> so, I mean, the real question here: I don't really think that anybody really thinks that Crist or 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 Freed Crist is apparently going to win, but let's say he isn't going to win, and Freed wins unexpectedly. But they're actually going to beat DeSantis. So now the question is, is this the race 
that George W. Bush had in 1998. George W. Bush is reelected in 1998. He was up against a, a Democrat, having won a close one race in 1994. Bush then wailed the tar out of the, the Democrat who ran against him, getting almost 60% of the vote, getting, a, I think, an absolute majority of the Hispanic vote or pretty close to him. Maybe it was 45% of the Hispanic vote in Texas. And basically, that was the moment at which people said, well, my God, he is a formidable candidate for president. You know, he may sound like he doesn't speak English fluently and stuff like that. But I mean, look at what this guy did in this was when Texas was still a semi-purple state. And so he, that was the end, that that was the argument that he was the electable guy. He was the guy who could do it. So if, if, if DeSantis ends up beating one of these two by 10 or 12 points, let's say, which having won by half a percentage point four years ago, his argument that he is incredibly well positioned in the third largest state in the country, a state that is, you know, is now more Republican than it has been in a long time, but is still, you know, still has to be considered a purple state, a state that Democrats can win, um, that he goes at Trump theoretically November onward as look, I'm, I got proven results here. I won twice and I my margin grew by an enormous amount and you lost the last time you ran. So um, can't say that. Well, okay, if you can't <laughs> say it, then he can't run. So, yeah. you know, so maybe he can't run. But anyway, that that's the only interesting thing. Is that the only interesting thing? In, no, in no, I feel like we've had this conversation many. <laughs> the, what's interesting is the Senate race in Florida where Val but Demings, that's not the primary but the primary is right the, uh, right but yeah. they of course they'll have a primary in the senate too yeah. and we, it's going to be demings versus rubio and it's interesting and you know let's just accept all of the summer polling which we've been talking about for these senate races at face value even though there are serious reasons to be skeptical uh if you do that then demings is showing some strength uh vis-a-vis -vis rubio and I think I think that's an interesting dynamic. I know. Do I expect Marco Rubio to lose? No, but I think it does show one how important candidate quality is in the sense that Demings Demings should be our vice president, right? Demings should have been the vice. president. She should be our vice president. A very strong Thomas candidate, yes, right. Yeah. And that's and you just see it right there. And he she wasn't a vice president because she has connections to the police. Can you imagine? Oh my God, she helped <laughs> horror. enforce the law. Right, but so, so can't have Kamala. her. I mean, remember the Kamala, Kamala was the AG. Yeah, let, lock it up. But I think they were worried more about Demings not being statewide and and not knowing whether there was some stuff in the background. Anyway, it, I still think it was a mistake. Right, I my choice was was Demings. Um, and and then secondly, you know, I'd be interested to see uh, see this. Rubio has taken, uh, you know, kind of a turn toward embracing common good conservatism, uh, you know, giving interviews to American Affairs magazine, um, speaking at the NAFCON conferences, um, actually sp uh, speaking out for industrial policy and kind of taking the lead in kind of decoupling our economy from China's. I, I'm wondering whether that might have led to some erosion among the conservative vote in Florida by kind of libertarian types who are saying, you know, God, he's just becoming a big government guy when it comes to these um, economic policies. Uh, now, again, I don't I think it will solidify at the end, but I, I, that's what I find interesting. Right. And then uh, and then, of course, John, in in your state, there are a bunch of interesting primaries going Very. on. Yeah. And a special so, election. Yeah. So New York State has, uh, you know, uh, because of overreach, because there was this absolutely horrifying gerrymandering overreach that had to be overturned by a court and a new map hastily drawn, uh, we have this late August primary in which there are a bunch of new districts that have thrown well-known Democrats into competition with other well-known Democrats in a kind of, you know, uh, Game of Thrones-like fashion, but we'll get to that in a minute. So you have 
Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney in Manhattan. Nadler was the congressman from the West Side. Maloney was the congressman from the East Side. They're both 312 years old. Um, they should both have retired already. Uh, and apparently they're deep, they're great old friends, and this is the end of their friendship because they're being viciously attacking each other, even though Nadler apparently is going to win going away. There's a poll that has him up by 30 points or something like that. So uh, congratulations to the two of them for ruining their friendship for a seat that will almost certainly be in the minority. So, you know, it's really fun to be in the House minority. Congratulations to them both. But the really interesting race is in this new district, New York 10, in which you have um, uh, a bunch of crazy people all running against each other. And then this one guy who was not that crazy and is very rich, Daniel Goldman, known to Americans as the one of the prosecutors in the in the first impeachment trial of Trump, uh, the Ukraine trial, uh, heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, uh, got the New York Times endorsement, is sort of up four or five points in the polls and a polls polls that showing people in in the twenties, <laughs> and because he's rich, and because he is now being characterized by the other people in the race as being. A right winger. He's a right. He is. He is. He is Trump. He is. He is running as Trump in the district. He's Trumpian. Trump endorsed and, and Trump endorsed him in order to give them a little fodder. Uh, but um, it, it is hilarious seeing these progressives take a mainstream Democrat and then say, I mean, it's essentially just a flipped version of Rhino. They're sort of calling him a Dino or you know like a Rhino. Um, and he's probably uh, going to win. And then, and then we have Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, whose district was folded into the district of first-time uh, Congressman Mondaire Jones. And Mondaire Jones then decided, well, to run to anyway. So. Uh, progressives versus non there's a there's a dino versus maga daga stuff going on in new york state um i think in in the end by the way that the that unlike the daga like unlike in republicans the the dinos are going to probably end up winning here um, right and that would be a blow to uh alexandria ocasio cortez who is backing a lot of the progressives in a lot of these races, including one uh, uh, challenger against Maloney, who, as you say, is the head of the DCCC, the head of yeah. the, the House committee. So it's definitely a um, kind of squad versus establishment fight in a lot of these districts. I think one thing we should point out is this chaos is the result of New York losing population. And uh, because of, in my view, blue model policies that have been imposed on the state now for two decades, and and what is so it's the the craziness is fun because it's almost like as you know like as a star collapses into a black hole, everyone is having kind of compacted and kind of squeezed together, and so you have all of these progressives and liberals having to fight it out as they get smaller and smaller in relation to the cosmos of the United States of America. I know that's a strained metaphor, but I'm going to no. I think it's it. a very I think it's actually a super like metaphor, <laughs> and and of course the first volleys in this um came uh were not really as a result of the of the contraction but you had you had a kind of maga dynamic in 2020 when uh Elliot Engel the ancient congressman from the Bronx and part of Westchester was knocked off his pedestal <coughs> by Mondaire Jones and and of course the and then of course in 2018 Alexander Ocasio Cortez knocking off Joe Crowley again a sort of a all the ultimate sort of dino uh, and winning beating him in a a primary in which 25,000 people voted uh, when you know beating him by 5,000 votes and now be, then becoming the star in the American political firmament. And this is kind of like a blowback where we're sort of where we've moved away from this is sort of like, OK, even in New York State, when it comes down to it, you're probably going to see the mainstream Democrats outpacing 
the progressives because there's either either there's too much at stake or the progressives are being crazily undisciplined and they're not they're not uh, cohering behind a single individual candidate in this New York 10 race you have you know like it's like one of those things where you have a latina or a latinx versus a gay filipino versus a you know trans Alaskan, you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm making all this up, but it sort of is. Everyone c- came to the debates with their identity shields, but they also have bad. They also have this is another uh, sort of echo of of the problem on the right too. They have some bad candidates. Um, Biagi, I think, is the one who's going up against mm-hmm. John Patrick Maloney, and it she's so bad that her staff like was running to Politico at every opportunity to talk about what a tyrant she was as a, as an employer and just you know the kind of stuff that usually the mainstream media doesn't doesn't hit so hard to the progressive candidate on, and she's just gotten you know absolutely yeah. shredded in the media for her behavior. She's a bad. And she's also not a great candidate. She's the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsement. And we should recall, AOC's endorsements have not done well necessarily in primaries. It's a loss in Texas. I mean, a lot of the people she she puts up as her minions have not won. Right. So Democrats, it turns out, are, are sort of uh, maybe, you know, because they understand that politics is their entire game, they're actually more serious it could be that what we have here is like look the stakes are too high it's all fun it's all fun and game someone sneaks up on 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 joe crowley and knocks him off and then she she gets to be on the cover of vogue and that's all really cute but like we are now in a we are now in a death battle here and you know we're gonna vote for people who might actually be competent and there's also no trump i mean i think trump was good for the squad Right. Because right, the squad yeah. started under Trump in 2018 and then it doubled in size in 2020. Right. And there's no Trump anymore on the ballot for now. And right. so uh, some of these uh, more mainstream Democrats are able to reassert themselves. Um, but uh, that's just one final race to pay attention to tonight. Tuesday is um, the special election in New York 19, which, um, you know, these special elections do tell us a little bit about the state of the electorate headed into the midterm. Um, Ryan, the Democrat, um, is um, focused on uh, Roe v. Wade, Dobbs, um, and then uh, Molinaro, the Republican, focused on inflation. So you really do have kind of an up or down choice here, abortion or inflation. <laughs> you know, pick your poison <laughs> and, and we'll see which one uh, wins uh, in, uh, on the ballot tonight. All right. So let's move on to our, to our, to our, our, our cultural feature of the day, premiere on Sunday night on HBO of the uh, sequel to Game of Thrones, the last great international television hit that everybody in the world watched, much to my kind of amazement, because uh, it was so dirty and it was so violent. And it was nonetheless, you know, by the, by the end, 20 million people in the United States were watching every week on a pay cable channel, uh, dwarfing audiences of broadcast TV and everything like that. And now we have House of the Dragon set 172 years before Game of Thrones. I bring this up because, as I say, Matt Connetti wrote a really uh, brilliant essay about the books, really, more than the TV show, George R. R. Martin's series of six novels, um, of which you were a well, pretty only, huge fan. There are only five novels. Five, I'm sorry. Working, uh, he's been working, he's been on, working on the sixth one for yeah. 10 years. Yes, yes. He That's Kasabin's book. He is we're yeah. working on the Kasabin's book. The that key to all here. mythologies. Yes. George R. R. Martin. Yes. So, um, Matt, uh, your your take on Game of Thrones was that yeah. it it is really a great political saga that it's a it's a political novel in the guise of being a fantasy novel or a, a saga because it is many books and that and that and it is a very um sane dark cynical but um comprehensive look at political action right Would yeah you the struggle that? the struggle for power piece i wrote uh uh, gosh, uh, 10 years ago now uh, for the Claremont Review um, about the books, uh, just as the television series was was getting started. Now, what's funny is um, Martin himself gave an interview about the new show, which he's involved in. And he said it's going to be more politics, 
than Game of Thrones. We said Game of Thrones was more supernatural. And of course, he had a now famous falling out with the showrunners of Game of Thrones in the final seasons, which kind of basically meant that he was excluded from the creative process. And he still is um, aggrieved over this. And so I, when I looked at the pilot last night at your urging, uh, John, I noticed that I think it was a lot of Martin trying to reassert himself and and his vision of what the show should be. So um, the, uh, the, the so-called sex position, which Game of Thrones made famous, that of course was, it, it actually kind of went away in the later seasons of Game of Thrones, but it was right back in the pilot here. Uh, and then the, uh, yeah, the ultra it's a guy talking about what he wants and what he needs from his future life while yeah. a naked woman is yeah, rubbing just, his back or he's participating in an orgy. It's totally gratuitous. Gratuitous uh, doesn't even begin to describe yeah, it. In some right. ways, it defines it. Just it, downright it, pervy. Is yeah, but it, but, it, but it functions as a kind of commentary on gratuitousness through its sheer gratuitousness like it's like couldn't they just have this conversation they could with their clothes on but no <laughs> they, anyway yes. and then the ultra violence is the other part and um and then too in like in the final seasons of game of thrones it uh it actually became much more uh cinematic in a way kind of um almost more mainstream it was just more like a hollywood spectacle i think and that that meant a lot of fans didn't like it you know because they wanted the the real martin which is the pornography and the, yes. and the ultraviolence and all of that was in this premiere. Uh, now, of course, since I'm a contrarian by nature, that meant I didn't really like this, this premiere. I preferred the more Hollywood version, the ending of Game of Thrones, uh, which will, I believe, and I will predict on this show today, will remain the only ending of Game of Thrones because yes. he's never going to write those books. Right. right. So on the, on the I, gratuitous I, I, violence, Part yes. that we were all talking about this on the on the commentary thread because how the idea of like how can you one up that all the violence that was in the original Game of Thrones series what what can you do how and and John hit on it immediately because my first comment was I could have done without the you know violent cesarean section scene like that you know as someone who has experienced that I was like ew why are we, uh, 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 very jarring um, I wondered if the political overtone of that was because of course you instantly saw all these think pieces about how in the post Dobbs era you know the new game of thrones prequel shows us the dangers blah 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 but john hit on it. he's like it's the only thing they didn't do in the last series that they could do it's like look some new act of violence we can feature in the pilot so i yeah. found that unnecessary but i get why they probably did it well i mean you know if you remember every after uh, on twitter after every episode of game of thrones when it became the phenomenon around around season three and then onward Every time there was an act of violence, there would be this conversation about how unnecessary it was. You know, it was sort of like, really, did we really have to see Jamie Lannister rape his his sister girlfriend? Like, that was, you know, that, that's just going too far. It's like, really, it's okay that they threw a kid out a window in the first episode, that they have three children together, even though they're, they're, they're husband, that she is a murderer, he's a murderer, although he's also done a noble thing by killing the Mad King. But he had non-consensual sex with his sister. That's the moment at which I have to get off the Game of Thrones train. Like, it constantly happened. Every other episode was like, this is no way to, to portray women and stuff like that. And obviously, they understand that that's a secret sauce. And we're going to be seeing stuff like this in every episode. That cesarean set is only the beginning. Well, yeah. we saw someone get his face Who's smashed we? in with Who's a. With a I, I don't think I'm going to watch. Okay. I mean, it's, it's it was good. It was it was fine. But uh, I dropped out of the television show despite being a huh. huge fan of the books because I couldn't. I just couldn't take the. Okay, the, well, what you Tom Wolfe once called porno violence. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're doing Daenerys again. So Daenerys that just course, worked last time. Yeah. We're doing a succession yeah. narrative again because that just worked last time. I put the first season on his background radiation last night while we were uh, packing. And it's so captivating and so compelling as storytelling, as uh, a, a story about people uh, attempting to seek and control power I, and command power. I did not get that from this first uh, first season. I got I didn't get first much episode. character development. In fact, I got uh, a lot of box checking. 
Okay, you're being unfair. Can I tell you why you're being unfair? Because the the first episode of Game of Thrones, the original first episode of Game of Thrones, is like ten minutes of these stupid zombies walking around in a forest. And then we get to this castle. We don't know anybody in the castle. And they're walking around waiting for the king to arrive. Then the king arrives and he says to the guy at the castle, I want you to be my hand. And we're like, what the hell is a hand? I don't know what anything is. And then this boy climbs away a tree and he sees this the, the children of the, the wife of the king and the brother having sex. And then they throw him out the window. And that's the end of the episode. And you're like, who the hell are these people? What on earth is going on here? And then it kind of, uh, the famous story of Game of Thrones is that uh, first episode ratings came out and they were fine, but they weren't great. And the people who made it, Benioff and Weiss, thought were were toast. The second episode came in and it had exactly the same ratings as the first episode. And they were like, okay, we're done. And then the head of HBO called them and said, this show is going to be the biggest thing we've ever had. And they said... What are you talking about? The ratings were exactly the same as last week. And he said, every show we've ever had, the ratings dropped by half in the second week. You held your entire audience. This is going to be the biggest show we've ever had. And he was absolutely right. So I'm not sure if you went back with fresh eyes that and you watched the first episode of Game of Thrones, you were like, what the hell is going on here? This was actually, I think, more coherent and the only real question is, are they going to create, is there a core set of characters that they're going to create that you're going to follow the way you followed the Stark family? Because here the core set of characters is a single solitary girl who is the surviving daughter of this uh, you know, tragic couple who looks like Daenerys, the dragon girl from the first show, and her best friend, who is the daughter of the Machiavellian guy who was half Peter Baelish and half uh, uh, the dwarf, whatever his name is, I can't remember. Tyrion. Tyrion Lannister, thank you. The key to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is right. not in this, pre- you know, there is, Tyrion always gave you some humor. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of humor. Yeah, there we, were we, no yeah, we got, we got, we got, yeah. we got We got very little humor, but I have to More say, dragons, I though. thought it was going to be awful. I thought the show was going to be awful. And I thought it was pretty great. Yeah, now, it wasn't that awful. doesn't mean yeah. that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to pull it off because the whole thing was it started out with this family, of course, and then you end up opening it out to this cast over however many seasons it was of maybe a hundred people. Like there, there are a hundred and seven fa- seven different locations, ten or twelve different families, various. You know, and and how they managed to keep all those balls spinning, you know, or those plates spinning in the air was pretty amazing. And here you start with this pretty close-in focus on this one thing, this death of a woman providing no male heir, and now there's going to be a fight. Who's going to marry the widowed king? And is it going to be the best friend of the girl that we're going to follow, who is the one who has the dragons? And... I was just very, I thought it was really good. And I don't think that the Lord of the Rings show, which I guess premieres next weekend, that looks horrible to me. Well, we're going to have to come back and uh, follow up because you thought that this didn't look good either. And then I know, but I don't like You could be pleasantly surprised by the new dwarves and elves. See, but I (laughs) love, I love Charm You. the Game of Thrones book. So the first three that I, that I, then I lost. And you got very mad at me, as I recall. Yeah. For forcing you to read the fourth and fifth ones. Yeah. It was a, it was a terrible, it was a t- terrible crime that I've still, I've, I've yet to, yet to forget. Cause one of those books basically is like, now let me tell you about this guy over here who will never appear in the main story because I have writer's block and I have no idea where the, where the story is going to go. Um, Anyway, I just think it's uh, it was it was, uh, but the pol again, what is entrancing and what will be entrancing, I think, aside from you know, you get a little porn here, get a little ultra violence over here, but will be this question of how this council of leaders and this this unsettled world deals with these succession issues because if they pull that off, that was the secret sauce. The other great story about 
the original Game of Thrones is they shot the pilot, they shot, they shot a pilot, they threw it away, and then they shot a second pilot, which is almost never done. They finished the second pilot, they rewritten it, and it was too short. It was 35, 37 minutes long. There's a lot of action in it. And there was whatever. And it was too short. And so was the second episode. And they needed to lengthen it. And when they needed to lengthen it, what they what they went to was let's have Tyrion have a conversation with Jamie about power or something like that. So they had they would spend three minutes and there would be some conversation between Robert Baratheon, the king, and Eddard Stark, his hand, and they would have some conversation about power and politics and stuff like that. And that's what made the show. Turns out it wasn't the dragon battles. It was these five-minute conversations where people would be sitting, you know, in a in a in a sepulcher, you know, with a cup of mead talking about how the world really works. And It'll be it'll be interesting to see if they if they can pull if they get that now like if they if they're not so hysterical about showing the dragon the naked dragon with the three breasts then you know and they and they get that down and it's not just a copy that's of course the other problem was that Martin had this made this deep it's essentially the War of the Roses right that's the Game of Thrones is about England in the fifteenth fourteenth and fifteenth centuries and so he had a model to follow and they're now of course flying blind. I mean, they, they don't have the, they don't have the, the wars of the roses. So they don't have a different thing to hook themselves on. I don't know where it's going to go, but Christine, aside from the cesarean scene, which by the way, I use my HBO max thing and I did flip ahead 15 seconds until I saw that the surgery was over. Yeah. So I didn't even watch it. So I I gotta I gotta admit to that. But it you didn't miss much. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I kind of I I'm sympathetic to Noah's uh, prediction that that we're gonna have like Daenerys 2.0 because you know you had the small blonde lady flying around on her dragon, um you know uh, being misunderstood and overlooked for power even though she you know judging by her always stern face must understand power and then the father realizing that she should be the should be the heir. Um, we'll see. I, I don't like a lot of girl power in my medieval fantasy fiction, so, but it's always there now. It's it's impossible to avoid. Uh, I thought that the um, character played by is it Reese uh, uh, who if plays it. the hand? Yes, he Reese he was the most interesting character to me yeah. in that pilot episode. He's the one who I want to get to know more. He's obviously plotting to have his daughter marry the widowed king, and and uh, down the line, which will of course force a confrontation with her best friend, who's the daughter. So and now the heir. Um, so I, I look forward to that. The, the character I really disliked and we're supposed to dislike, but I just dislike like literally when he walked on the every time he was shown on the screen, it was annoying is the the crazy brother, the younger brother um, who, you know, the violent, uh, impotent, uh, difficult second son. Um, it's just too cliche. So I, I didn't enjoy him. Matt, Matt Smith, I think, is the Matt actor. Matt Smith, who played. Yeah, great uh, actor, but I don't like him in this role. I mean, played, the, 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 wag, the, the helmet with the winged dragon things on it during the joust. Yeah. I just, yeah, they lost Doctor Who. He was Doctor yes, Who. Yeah. Oh, He's he a great Doctor actor. Who. He's a great actor. I just don't yeah. like him in this role. I liked him. <laughs> I liked everything pretty much. That's I got I to gotta admit, I kind of liked everybody. That's um, surprising for you. You usually have a strong reaction. I, to I get very and I get very sour about these things, and it's like they, I, they kind of, they kind of stuck the landing. And of course, the last season of Game of Thrones really you you liked the last season of Game of Thrones, Matt. I mean, it cut some corners. Okay, I mean it, it ended I mean, it was, the story. I wanted. I mean, I was glad the they completed the story. That was the most important thing because the reason I that thought Martin I thought got, the person. Ended up with the throne. I I was I was happy with that. Okay, that decision. Yes. Yeah. Well, as I say, as you say, that will be the only. And the reason they had to cut him off, they had to cut George R. R. Martin off, is that I think he was saying to him things like, you know, I can't tell you because I'm still <laughs> working. I'm writing. It's the book is coming, and they're like, look, we have a hundred million people working on the show, and we have to finish so that our lives. Are not we don't have to spend the rest of our lives living in Belfast. I don't want to live in Belfast anymore. I've been living in Belfast for seven years. Get me out of Belfast. We're gonna like just rush through this, you know. 
she's a monster. He's going to kill her. There's going to be a, you know, the three-eyed raven is going to be on the throne. And there will be done. incest. There will be incest. every. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be incest. Incest is very big. I didn't know incest was so big, but apparently incest very, very big. And they have, there is, there is the incest hint here. Well, it's not exactly incest, right? Uncle, the uncle, uncle and the niece not... is definitely incest. We do okay. categorize that as incest. Okay. All right. Okay. They're related. Um, Ew. Yeah. The whole secret of a show like this is whether they can come around in the second season and sort of like introduce a character like Littlefinger, Peter Baelish, and you're like, give me that more of that guy. You know, it's not like let let me get back to these, let me get back to these other people. It's like, oh man, this is amazing. <laughs> you just introduce an even more interesting person. And that's gotta happen in these next episodes because there aren't enough, there aren't enough people in the plot yet for it to get really intriguing. But so Matt, you didn't like it. Noah, you liked it. Christine, you liked it. I loved it. Uh and there we there we have it. So congratulations. This is yet another weird episode of kind of like the one last week we did the commentary after dark. We will not be doing one on Lord of the Rings because I will now confess to you. I hate Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I hate the books. I never finished them. I didn't much like the movies. I know they're really popular and it's all world building and I can't, I hated them. So we're not going to talk about them. Matthew Cottonetti. Thank you so much. Noah, have a fantastic vacation. Christine you, and I and Abe will be back tomorrow. We'll probably have a guest or two. I'm not sure what we're going to do. Uh, but uh, we will labor on without Noah somehow, which is harder than I can even explain for technical reasons. Matt, thanks again. Everybody have a good day. We'll see you tomorrow for Abe, Christine, the absent Abe, Christine, Noah, and Matt. I'm John Pot Keep the camera working.